Good morning. My name is Ginny. I am the uh, associate priest here at Emmanuel. If you don't know me at all, that is because I have been on sabbatical the last several months, uh, spending time with my family and resting and just having a really wonderful time uh, there with them. And uh, it was such a great gift to me to have that time off. And so uh, a little note will be coming out from me in the weekly reader tomorrow. So if you subscribe to that, you'll see that and you'll hear a little bit more about it. But I just want to say thank you. Without uh, a church that values sabbatical and rest, uh, there is not a space for people like me to have that time. And so I just want to say thank you to you all for, uh, for supporting me in that way and uh, for uh, your patience and just all of those things. So thank you. Thank you very much. I also just want to say um, I could not be more uh, overjoyed and at peace about the decision from the vestry and our bishop to appoint Amy as our rector. Uh, having done this job for the last two-ish years, um, I am so happy to not do it <laughs> anymore. But in all seriousness, I am, um, I just love this woman so much. I know her very well and have for a long time. And uh, I, I'm actually going to preach at her installation service on Tuesday and say all the things that I want to say to you right now, but don't have time. So if you want to hear all of that, um, but also if you want to come and celebrate with us and be a part of, of a really important moment in the life of our church, I would love to see you all there on Tuesday, 7 at 7. You can register online, and that way we know to have enough dessert and uh, champagne for you. So register. It's important. Um, all right. We've done a lot so far this morning. If you want to just, like, just move your body for a second and, like, just get, get you know, you're, you're not just receiving, you're participating, you know what I mean? That's what me and my counselor do. She's like, as soon as I sit down, she's like, okay, move your body. I'm like, that's not why I came here. Um, but it's good. All right. We're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew today. In Matthew 25, this is Jesus speaking. He's been teaching for several chapters. And he says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like this. Ten bridesmaids took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. When the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, all of them became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a shout, Look, here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those bridesmaids got up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise replied, No, there will not be enough for you and for us. You'd better go to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they went to buy it, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went with him into the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the other bridesmaids came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he replied, Truly I tell you, I do not know you. Keep awake, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning expectant to hear from you, whether it be from the worship, the music we sing, whether it be from the sermon, the communion liturgy, or just from your spirit, we come open to you, Lord, 
expectant. And you say that when we knock, you answer. And so here we come together this morning, the church, and we stand before the door of your heart and we knock and we say, open, Lord. We ask that you would give to us this morning what it is that we need. Give us the manna that we need for today. We trust you, Lord, that you are faithful to provide those things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So this is one of my favorite parables, and um, I, I say that also not able to say, like, and here's why, because it's actually kind of dark and tragic, you know, and it, like, might be because I'm an Enneagram 4. I, it's not like I read this and I'm like, it just moves me to worship. I just think it's interesting and dark and twisty, you know, like, I think M. Night Shyamalan could write a movie about the Ten Bridesmaids. Wouldn't it be a great movie? Um, so there's something about that on the surface of this parable that just gets me like, it just gets me really initially interested in what's going on here. Um, but every time I preach on it, every time I have to like dig a little deeper, I do actually go beneath, you know, the M. Night layer and find a lot of really beautiful, wonderful things that I think the Holy Spirit is saying through this text that I want to talk about today. So this is a parable, as I said, um, and parables are stories that Jesus tells to explain to us, to give us a picture about how things work in God's world. So today we're going to try and understand this parable together to hear what Jesus is saying that he can maybe only say through story about how things work in God's world. Specifically, I want us to look at three symbols that are within this parable. The first is the ten bridesmaids, the second, the lamps. And third is the oil. So that's what we're going to do. What we are not going to do is we are not going to over-prescribe what these symbols might mean to an end of like prediction or puzzle solving how to get into heaven or what the end of the world might look like. Anybody with me? Ever been sitting in the pulp or in the audience at a you know a church service like that? where someone took this and said, here's exactly what this means for this future event. It can do a lot of damage to us sometimes, I think, when those things happen. I don't think Jesus would have used parables if he wanted to be so specific about such big things. Do you know what I mean? Hear me when I say, I believe Jesus is most certainly mysterious, but he's not cryptic. He didn't come to us with, like, keys for understanding something, and if you don't, you just don't. You don't really get it. That's just not the heart of who Jesus is. So when we come to this parable, that's sort of the spirit we're bringing with us. Jesus tells parables so that we can get to the heart of something that's going on, not so that we can predict the end of the world. And on that note, I want to say something just as a sort of aside, but that does have to do with this idea of symbols, uh, just real quick. Uh, there's a lot of talk in the Christian world currently um, around the events that are happening in the Middle East. And what I want to say to you this morning as someone who uh, cares deeply about these things that are going on and also cares deeply about you, Christianity, this thing that we love, the reason we're here this morning, is 100% more about the state of our hearts and the actions that flow out of it than ab about predicting future events and decoding current ones. When symbols are used in scripture, they are a means to communicate something about the heart of God to us, to give us a sort of way of understanding something in God's reality that can't actually be said literally in a way that we can 
necessarily understand. They're things to think about and wrestle with and pray over in community. There are no codes to be cracked in scripture is what I am saying to you this morning. And the reason for that is we can too easily turn those things into weapons to hurt one another, to make delineations about who's in and who's out, who believes these sort of predictions. I think the great cloud of witnesses and the communion of saints would testify to the fact that any decoding we as Christians have attempted to do from scripture had us looking more foolish than wise, amen, over the years. And maybe that's what this parable is telling us as well. So when it comes to Israel and Hamas, what we call you to as a church is not over-spiritualizing these events. We just don't have the knowledge to do it. Or assigning biblical meaning. What we call you to is thinking about, praying about, and wrestling with these things in community, in humility. Thinking about these current, past, and ongoing complicated political conflicts within the Middle East, with Israel and Palestine in a way that doesn't make us uh, gain power over someone else or say, I'm right, you're wrong, but can we come together and can we have conversations, real conversations in peace with one another? I also just want to say that we are um, meeting as a staff, as a leadership team, to try to figure out ways that we can do that together because we feel like it's really important. And we're not like being silent from the stage because uh, we don't think it's important. Uh, we are uh, waiting to have something good to say, to have some space, to have a peaceful and fruitful conversation to make space for that. So we actually already have like, we talked this week, we have a couple more dates on the calendar to talk about this. And so as soon as that sort of space is made, you all will know, we will tell you, and we will invite you to come join us in that space because these are really big, important things. And we don't want to just, you know, shoot from the hip up here. Uh, we want to do it in a way that feels honoring uh, and truthful. Um, so... Just wanted to let you know, all know that. One last thing I want to say about this parable before we dig into the symbols. This parable is, um, I think has been used, can feel on the surface like it is a parable about condemnation. But I do not believe, as someone who has read this scripture again and again and studied it and been someone who has attempted in her life to be close to the heart of God, I don't believe that is what the heart of this parable is saying to us. I think many of us has been preached at in this regard in this parable, but it's not actually about ins and outs at the end of the day. This parable is about knowing Jesus. And so as we continue to look at these symbols and think about what Jesus is teaching in this moment, we can go ahead, just telling you at the beginning, I'm not going to save it till the end, go ahead and take the condemnation piece that maybe you brought in to this moment in scripture or today when I read it and just like put it over here, okay? Can we all do that? This is about knowing Jesus. All right, say yes, Jenny. Okay, let's go. Ten bridesmaids. Uh, so the NRSV, which is the version we read today, is very PG in its rendering of this word, calling them bridesmaids. Most other translations you will read calls them virgins, the ten virgins. Um, and while it's certainly more tame, I think, bridesmaids, um, we lose something in this translation into bridesmaids. The thing that remains, which is good, is this idea of a wedding. Obviously, if they're going to a wedding, it makes sense that they're bridesmaids. And it's not that they're not. Um, but the, the reason Jesus uses this word, virgins, is for a very specific reason. There's a meaning behind it. 
because these 10 women are meant to symbolize faithful waiting. This parable is actually the middle of three parables about faithful waiting. If you know anything about uh, biblical writers, when they do three things together, it's called a sandwich. And whatever's in the middle is the meat of the sandwich. And it's like the most important part. It's the thing that's saying the thing the most explicitly, the most important thing. And that's what we have here. Today, we are, this is like the meat of a sandwich about faithful waiting. And so when Jesus says this is a parable about ten virgins, he's saying to these people, he's already communicating something to them that they would know very well, which is what it means to wait faithfully. Matthew is telling us that as Christians, we're accountable to our, for our response to Jesus, particularly in the spaces of waiting, in these in-between places. I believe this is what Paul is saying when he says in Philippians that we must work out our faith with fear and trembling, that there's something that is ours in this, and that is our responsibility to respond to Jesus often in our waiting, that there's an activity and waiting when it comes to being a Christian. Jesus is emphasizing in the parable of the ten virgins the importance of being faithful in the places in our life when things are uncertain. I think particularly when we're experiencing disappointment. I was shocked over and over again and thrilled in seminary when I started taking New Testament classes because what I learned, discovered very early on, is the New Testament is really just a bunch of letters written to a group of people who were disappointed that Jesus hadn't come back yet. And these letters are letters of encouragement and letters of hope saying, don't give up. It's going to happen, and he's still good in the meantime. Which is good news, I think, for you and me. Because when we sit down to the New Testament and we read these letters, we read these gospels, we sit before them not as the first person to feel disillusioned in their faith. You are like the one trillionth. That that's actually a gift that we have. We can sit before the scriptures, these letters that were written to people who were confused. Why do we keep going? Why is it taking so long? Where's the blessing? Where's the fruit? If you come to scripture with that feeling sometimes, I think maybe that is like exactly what you're supposed to bring to it. Your whole self waiting for the Lord. That's what we do when we come to scripture. And scripture then is able to do its job and respond to us in that place and say, let me tell you why you keep waiting. Let me tell you why it's good enough to keep going. That's the witness of scripture to us in our life. That is why we can be people who are faithful waiters, you know? It's our legacy. It's our birthright. We've been doing this since the very beginning. So faithful waiting, that is what Jesus is telling us in this parable. So now I want to talk about the lamps as a symbol. The lamps hold the fire, right? The oil is the part that, like, is the fuel, the thing that keeps it going. But the lamp is the thing that contains, that holds the fire. You'll have to excuse me because I cannot talk about fire without going to the Old Testament. So if you will go with me, um, we're going to Leviticus this morning. Anyone excited about that? Yeah. yeah. Um, I, on my sabbatical, because, uh, 
because I really do love the Bible, I studied uh, the temple in Exodus and Leviticus and um, got really jazzed about lots of nerdy stuff. So I want to share, just talk a little bit about fire in the Old Testament with you real quick, because I think it's really important. And I think, you know, I try to imagine if I was someone that Jesus is talking to, someone who was Jewish, someone who knew these Old Testament stories in their bones in a way that, you know, so many of us don't anymore, What would I hear when Jesus told this parable? When he talked about lamps and fire and oil, what would I be thinking about? And I am fairly certain they would be thinking about the temple. They would be thinking about the tabernacle, this place where they met with the Spirit of God. So we're in Leviticus chapter 9, and before this, God has given Moses chapters and chapters and chapters of instructions on how to set up something called the tabernacle. It's a temple, but it moves because they're on their way to the promised land. And God's like, I'm not going to wait, make you wait till you get to the promised land to meet with me, to commune with me, to worship with me in this way. I'm actually going to let you do it along the way. So he gives them instructions on how to make this movable temple. And he tells them not just how to set it up or build it, but how to manage it how to keep it holy, and he gives them instructions on using it rightly. So there are a lot of things in this tabernacle that use fire. It's a very important part of everything that's going on in the tabernacle, uh, including the altar of sacrifice, the altar of incense, and lamps. And what's interesting about all of these things is that they are supposed to burn perpetually. So the office of the priesthood, if you are uh, in the line of Aaron and you are a priest, a lot of what your job is is stoking fire, making sure that it never goes out. I'm going to be honest. I'm glad that's not part of my job. That doesn't sound very fun to me. Um, And thank God we don't have a perpetual fire burning in this place. But this was the job of the priest. This was part of what it meant to be a priest. And the reason it was to perpetually burn within the, sanctu- within the, um, the Holy of Holies, within the, the tabernacle, is because it's no ordinary fire. So let's read in Leviticus 9. This is verse 22. We're going to go into chapter 10. Aaron lifted his hands toward the people and he blessed them. This is right after Aaron has finally been inaugurated as a priest. He lifts his hands towards the people and blesses them. He came down after sacrificing the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the offering of well-being. Moses and Aaron entered the tent of meeting and then came out and blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came out from the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar, and when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Now, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it. They offered unholy fire before the Lord, such as he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord meant when he said, those who are near me, I will show myself holy. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron was silent. After all these instructions, literally nearly 30 chapters of it, Aaron's priesthood is finally inaugurated. The fire is lit. The thing is actually happening. What's so special about this fire? Anybody? God lit it. Aaron didn't go in there and light it, and that was the first it lit, and then it was to be perpetually burning. The glory of the Lord appeared before the people, 
before the people, and the fire from God went out and into the temple and lit the things that were to perpetually burn. And then these two jokers, first ones in there, you know, after all this happens, go in, basically take their own matches and try to light the incense for the fire, right? After God gave them this fire. And what happens to them? They get burned up, right? <laughs> Not a good situation for, for old Nadab and Abihu, right? They go try to light this incense with their own fire as if the living God had not just lit the thing for them. Now, I tell you that story because lamps, this symbol that represents heart things, I think what God wants to say to us through this imagery of the lamps is that you didn't start it. The fire of God is something that he started in you and continually and perpetually burns. Your job is to tend to it, but you didn't start it. And you can't put it out. And this is really good news for you and me. Because I think a lot of us in a world where we have so much control and we feel so much responsibility and so much of our life is about accomplishment is that we think if we don't tend this fire enough that it's going to go out. I often feel this moment in Leviticus a lot in my own life I think that I'm responsible for the work God is doing in my life. Anybody else feel that way? Like maybe things aren't working out very good because I haven't prayed enough or I haven't read my Bible enough and God's just sending down little mini curses on me until I just get better. You know what I mean? God doesn't work that way. Nothing I do in my life can put out the fire that God has started in me. John tells us we love because he first loved us. That fire has been lit in you, and you cannot put it out. The fire for God is his love for us. And whatever that we bring to it, that we think we're going to bring our own thing to it, we're going to take our own control to it, we're going to say, I maybe did this first and not God. He burns those things up in us. Because his love is too powerful not to. Like the writer of Hebrews says, he will shake everything that can be shaken. It's like scary news, but really good news. Because all the things in you that ought to be burned up will be. And not by a God who is angry at you. By a God whose love perpetually burns for you. And will burn up anything that competes with it in your life. So, if the lamp holds the fire, the oil keeps it going. The power is up to him. The participation is up to us. Amen? Say it with me. The power is up to him. The participation is up to us. Again, the power is up to him. The participation is up to us, right? Again, so we don't think that like, oh, we are the oil bearers, right? So we're the ones who are making sure that God's doing his work. No, no, God's power is his. We get to participate because he loves us and wants to bring us into that work with him. So let's talk about this symbol. It tends to the fire of God in us. One chapter earlier, Matthew is very sadly describing the state of things, what it looks like when persecution comes. In verse, uh, chapter 24, verse 12, he says, Because of the increase of lawlessness, the love of many will grow cold, which I think is just such a capturing phrase that he puts in his gospel, which I think may be what he was thinking when he put this parable right after that story, that moment, 
which is that oil, this idea of oil is fortitude, the endurance of love, the love that will not grow cold, that faithful waiting, enduring and tending the flame against all odds. So much of kingdom living is communal, and we talk so much about what it means to be in community and that our actions, our lives affect each other. But I do think this parable in particular is very individual and has an individual thing to say to you and me. What do they say to the foolish bridesmaids? You have to go buy it for yourself. In a religion where we think, believe, it's fundamental to our faith that we belong to one another and we depend on one another. What does it mean that Jesus would tell a story that these women would say to each other, you can't get it from me, actually. You have to go buy it for yourself. If you remember, what did we say in the beginning that this is about? It's not about condemnation. It's about knowing him. It's about knowing Jesus. What they are saying is, we have to know him for ourselves. I cannot know him for you. We live in a world where we can pay anyone to do almost anything for us. You, you guys know this? Like, I pay someone to clean my house, and I'm not a queen. Like in any other age, right? I would be royalty if someone came and cleaned my house. Occasionally, I will send out for someone to bring groceries to my house, and when that happens, I just feel like I, I have entered into some moment in my life where I am a queen of something. Do you know what I mean? Like, who gets groceries sent to their house? What world do we live in? There's this, like, era of convenience that you and I live in. And I'm not, I'm not here to say those are terrible things, because as I said, I also participate in them. What I do think is that there is a warning in it for us, that our instinct to outsource things, especially things that are a burden to us, can be antithetical to our formation into Christ-likeness. An instinct of constant convenience is not a Christian instinct. So I had a, a home birth with my first child, and that's not because I am a high and mighty crunchy crunch. It is because I'm terrified of hospitals, <laughs> and I would rather be at my home. I also didn't want to have medication during my birth, and I knew that if I was at a hospital, I'd be like, bring it on. So I had my first baby at home. And um, right towards the end, if you've ever given birth, you know when you get right towards the end, that's the moment where you're like, I've made a huge mistake. I do not any longer want children. <laughs> um, and so I'm, I'm getting right towards the end of it. And I, I think I said out loud, I've made a huge mistake. <laughs> and I look at my husband, who's like holding my hands and staring into my eyes, and I look at him and I say, help me. I just whispered it to him because there was almost this like fear, like if I said it out loud, people would be like, you don't need help. You can do it. I didn't want to hear that from anybody. I wanted him to literally help me, like get inside of my body and push this baby out, you know? And I just grabbed his hand and I said, help me. And he just looked at me with tears in his eyes, and just stayed with me to the very end. And that's what I think is so magical about birth. You have to do it yourself. No one else can get in there and do it for you. 
it's this incredible experience where you, you feel the physical feeling of, I want out with every single thing in me, and I don't have an option. I have to push through all the way to the end here. And I, this is what I think these five bridesmaids, these wise ones, are telling us. There are some things in life you must endure for yourself because it's the only way some things can be birthed in you. It's the only way we can know Jesus through the hard things. Being the faithful people waiting for him is going through, enduring that faithful waiting, that endurance of love, pushing all the way through. You have to do it for yourself. You have to know him for yourself. There are lots of things that I can stand before you as your pastor and do for you. I can teach you, you know, on Sundays. But there's a lot in your life that I cannot do for you. I can't stay in your marriage for you. I can't hold on to your celibacy for you as much as I may try. I can't give you my character if you would even want it. I can show you the way. I can teach. I can share with you my experience, but I cannot get you through the hard places in your life. I can't give you oil. You have to go buy it for yourself. Faithful waiting is the fortitude to know Jesus, no matter the cost, through whatever experience may come your way. To go through these crucible moments in our lives knowing we will be more like him and know him better on the other side. No one can know him for you. The whole reason I'm a pastor is because I got this fire lit in me that was, I want to help people know him for themselves. There is nothing else for me that's worth doing in my life the way God has made me. I want people to know him for themselves. And aren't we all, those of us who are parents, isn't that the thing we want more for our kids than anything else? I found myself this week praying for you all and praying for my own children in their rooms, just whispering over them, go buy oil, buy it for yourself. That they would one day grow up to be women of God who know and love Jesus for themselves in a way that I could tend, but I could never do for them. We must do it for ourselves, friends. This is the reason the five bridesmaids who endured, who had the oil, are called wise. This is from Paul in Romans chapter 5. We boast in our afflictions, knowing that affliction produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. To be wise is to take the time to know Jesus for yourself faithful waiting for the one who lit the fire in us and it cannot and will not burn out. Amen? Amen.